This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I'm often asked who my favourite playwright is. It's an odd question that I've fielded from students and audiences and friends and peers alike over the past decade or so. I find it tricky to answer because my enthusiasms shift from place to place and time to time. I sometimes try not to answer it. I sometimes try to impress people by talking about Euripides or Chekhov or Sarah Kane, three writers I adore and three writers whose work has deeply influenced my own, but neither are my favourite playwright. Partly because the notion of a favourite playwright is ridiculous and partly because they're such celebrated and recognised figures they could never attain the level of the secret crush of fandom that the term implies. A favourite playwright needs to be a more private passion, a treasured discovery. The answer that comes closest to being the most truthful for me is that my favourite playwright is Robert Holman. I first met Robert Holman when we shared script meetings here at the Royal Court in 2000 when I was resident dramatist and he'd been invited into the building to join in the discussions advising the then artistic director Ian Rickson. I met him before I read him and I'm glad I did because I don't think I would have been so relaxed around him if I'd read his work first. It was Ian Rickson in fact who suggested I have a look at Robert's plays while I was writing Herons and Port. They astonished me. I'd never come across a play with a triptych as its form, like 1988's Beautiful Making Noise Quietly. I'd never read a play that combined scorching psychological incision with extraordinary heightened reality, like his 1990 play Rafts and Dreams. The play with the best opening scene I've read. The play with the best monologue I've read. I've never come across anything as obliteratingly cruel and fragile as the destroying of an egg in Across Ochre. As I got to know Robert Moore through working with him as a, on a collaborative play, 2010's A Thousand Stars Explode in the Sky, written with our friend the mighty David Eldritch, I came maybe to revere him less, thinking of him more as a colleague and collaborator than a hero, but my admiration has never dimmed. Born in 1952 in Gisborne, the northeast of Yorkshire, a village he took myself and David to while we were planning A Thousand Stars, he wrote his first plays for local theatres at the age of 20. He moved down to London in 1973. His first play at the Royal Court, Mud, was produced in 1974, and the four decades since then have seen him write, in my opinion, several of this country's best plays since the Second World War. His most recent play in 2015, A Breakfast of Eels, was a devastating, fragile study of grief and love between two half-brothers, a play, in my opinion, as rangy and rich as any he's written in the past. His compassion is matched only by his sense of formal boldness, his linguistic precision matched by his sense of stage imagery and honesty. It's a great pleasure to talk to him today. Robert Holman, welcome to the Royal Court. Thank you. I've always wondered if you talk bollocks. Now I, <laughs> and now I know you do. Bloody hell. <laughs> I've never been so praised or so embarrassed. <laughs> you needn't be embarrassed, Robert. <laughs> Accept the praise as being Thank genuine. Thank you very much. You're very sweet. <laughs> Do you remember Mod? Here, 
Yeah, mm. I do, yeah. Nineteen seventy four. Yes. And how long had you been in London when before before you before you wrote that play or before you had it staged here? I don't know. I think about two years. Right. Uh, I think I wrote it. I can remember writing it, or I can remember writing one scene of it. Mm. The scene between the squire and the son. Where were you living when you were writing in it? In Belsize Park, in mm-hmm. a family house in Belsize Park with a room upstairs. Right. Because I couldn't find anywhere else to live. Did you know the family? No. But I couldn't find... I went to a flat in Westbourne Park. I mm-hmm. found a flat in Westbourne Park and I sat on the bed. It was a furnished flat. And I sat on the bed and it was so depressing and dirty and horrible. And then I saw a rat run across the floor. <laughs> and I thought, I just can't stay. I can't <laughs> stay here. So and I think I rang my mother and I said, <laughs> help, help, help. <laughs> they knew, and they through a contact of theirs, they knew of somebody in Belsize Park who had a room. Right. Um, and I went there for a week, mm. and I stayed six years. So all the early plays were written there. And what are your memories of the Royal Court in 1974? Is it different to how it is now? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah I mean, not absolutely different, of course, because it's still putting on plays, mm. isn't it? So... Um, no, I mean, the things I really remember, it was, was the person next to me fell asleep. <laughs> you know, it was one night, it was a Sunday night. Was it just a one, it yeah, was a Sunday yeah, night yeah. performance, it right? Was a Sunday night performance. I yeah. think, I found out later that it was a run, the place was run by Oscar Lewinstein, mm-hmm. I think I've got the name right, mm-hmm. and, and it was either a run in the theatre upstairs or a Sunday night, and for right. some reason the director, I don't think he asked me, Chose a Sunday night, okay. and it was done on an Edward Bond set, I think the bingo set. Right. So it was in the theatre downstairs, yes, actually. Yes, yeah. it was downstairs, yeah. and it was full. Mm. Mm. And that evening I met a lot of these Royal Court people, like Lindsay Anderson, David Storey, because they all came. You were 22 years old. And I was 20. At 20, right. I think oh. I was 20. Yeah. 19, 1974, no, yeah. I wouldn't. I'd be 22, yeah. 21, actually. Okay. 21. Yeah. Did you know of those people before you met them? Had you heard yes. of Lindsay Anderson and Tony yes. Richardson? Oh, of course I had, yeah, because yeah. I'd seen Lindsay Anderson's films. Right. This Sporting Life, if yeah. I knew of David's story, I'd read some of the plays. Yeah, so I did. I was a bit scared of them, you know, a bit intimidated mm. by them. I met a lot of the Royal Court, the important people at the Royal Court when I first came here without really knowing who any of them were because I knew so little about theatre. I'm quite glad. Like, I'm glad I didn't know you before I met you. I'll tell you that for nothing. I've known you were so rude about compliments. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first... I was, a question I always ask people on here is, uh, what was the first time you ever went to a theatre? What did you see? Where were you? What was it? Right. Well, I have two memories. Mm-hmm. One is of going to see a play at my brother's, older brother's school in Great Ayton, and I would be about eight. Oh, wow. And it was The Tempest, Mm. school production of The Tempest, and I just remember a big storm at the beginning. (laughs) And probably roughly about the same time, I remember going to see Peter Pan at Darlington Civic Theatre. Not the panto, the straight version. It got Alistair Sim playing Captain Hook. You see, I remember, and Dawn Adams playing Peter Pan. And I'm going home and trying to fly. <laughs> I'll be about eight. 
it's a magical conversation then between the theatre and your imagination that you're trying to emulate. Even as a child, you're trying to reenact or reimagine that which you've seen. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe, because you don't think that at the time. No. You just think you sort of, I don't know, I obviously must have enjoyed it. Yeah. And I've remembered something of it. Yeah. Even The Tempest, which yeah. I wouldn't understand a word of, because yeah. I wouldn't understand a word of it now. <laughs> so I can't possibly have done when I was eight. But I must have got something from it. To remember the storm. Yeah. 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 Uh, so their memories. What when I was one of the questions I was thinking about asking you. Throughout your career, you've written really beautifully about teenagers. Um, and and in even in uh, Breakfast of Eels, the the youngest characters. Tw- is, is Penrose, it, yeah, yeah, who's in his early twenties. Yeah. What were you? What were you like as a teenager? Was I like? Yeah. Well, you'd have to ask other people, really. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember you... it being a happy time? Yeah, I think so. Not perfectly happy. I mean... No teenage um, life is, is it? No, I, 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 very hard to answer. It's, quite, it's, a, it's both a simple question and quite a difficult question. Mm. I mean, a simple question in that, that I think I came to things late because I was quite a late developer physically, if mm. you like. So the things I remember bitterly regret doing, you know, I didn't start smoking until I was 17, when everybody else started when they were about 14. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've managed to give it up fairly recently, and I hope that will continue. But I think, no, I think what it was, I think my teens were probably, I think I, I just thought I could do things, but I didn't know how to do them. And that, that's not right plays necessarily, that's to do with life. Mm. It's just that I think I've written, I mean, I've written about it endlessly, actually. Mm. So I don't know whether now I'm just putting the wrong spin on your question when I say the thing I've written about endlessly is that people are cleverer than they think they are and the struggle to believe that they can do things when they don't think they can. So I think I was a bit like that. I mean, I must have came. I must have come to London because I couldn't do anything else. Mm. You didn't go to university. No, if I'd got O levels or A levels, I would have gone to university. I had a few O levels, but I didn't have any A levels. Why did you not stay on to A levels? Was I that... did. Yeah, I failed them. Right. Because I was writing plays at the back of the room, <laughs> because I wouldn't have passed them anyway. So yeah. because I'm not academic, I yeah. don't don't have an academic brain. Yeah. I have a. I like to think a bit of an emotionally something brain. Yeah. But I don't have a brain that can write essays or tell you about the Spanish Civil War in an intellectual way. I can write about it, you know, a bit emotionally, but I couldn't no more write it, write an essay on it than I'd fly to the moon. Have you always written, like, from childhood? Did you write... Uh, did you take yourself to the back of the class and write when, when before you were 17? No. I wanted to write, you right. know, I wanted to write. I think I wanted to write from uh, probably about 12. Yeah. I had a lot of books, but it wasn't anything you did. I mean, it's interesting today, you know, we've got... I, I turn the news on before I come out, mm. and Theresa May today is make a speech about returning to grammar schools, mm-hmm. you know. Now, I remember grammar schools. I didn't go to one. You went to the secondary modern. I yeah. went to the secondary modern. Mm-hmm. And I did eventually get to the grammar school mm. to do A-levels. A, a I managed to scrape some O-levels together. Yeah. And I went to the secondary model, the grammar school to do 
A-levels, and I remember the history teacher sitting one day, diverted from the subject, but I'll carry on, sitting in an English lesson with this very, very old-school history teacher, and the kids from the secondary modern walking past on the path outside Mm -hmm. because they came out of school half an hour early, Mm -hmm. talking about the gods and everybody laughing, the other boys in the class laughing. Now, I didn't know what the gods were, but I found out later what gods meant was gifted in other directions. Now, I might have got up if I'd known that in the spec and smacked him one, because I went to that school. And I think, and, and so, I don't know what I'm saying now, really, other than the return to grammar schools makes me quite angry. Yeah. Um, but but the, the, but the decision to take yourself away from the classroom and write, so writing them was a, uh, a kind of gesture of defiance. In a way, there is there was a bit of defiance in it. I think. I mean, it's not not defiance in the sense that you know I would ever speak, ever ever do anything aggressive or horrible because I was too shy for that. I was still quiet. Yes. But as you know, I've always my quietness hides a steely determination. <laughs> <laughs> to get my own way, you know. And I hope that <laughs> we, I mean, we I do know that. We know, don't we? <laughs> and I don't, and I'm, I'm not pleased about it. But nice. I think I've always had it a bit, and I think it was that that enabled me to think, well, I can't do anything else. I might as just go to London. I might try and write plays. Was it always plays? Um, well, well, it was because that's what I happened into. I thought I'd be a great poet. You know, as you do when you're yeah. 14 yeah. and write terrible adolescent poetry, I think. But yeah. no, I drifted into, didn't drift into plays. I got into plays because uh, one of the teachers at school, we had to do uh, what were kind of just a minority time, they called it, two lessons a week aside from your A-levels. We had to do this and, I, and this teacher stood there and there were various options, you know, one was drama, so I put up my hand for that. Mm. Uh and I did. I went on this drama thing. As an actor? No, just it was just a course where you talk about drama. What oh. we talked about, I've no idea, because that's not what I remember. The thing that I do remember <laughs> is that he had his he had his favourites, this teacher. Right. There were always the bright boys. There were yeah. the Oxford and Cambridge boys. Yeah. Well I was never gonna be that. And and so this lasted a term, perhaps six weeks, coming up to the Easter holidays. And the homework from this course was over the Easter holidays, yeah. we had to write a play. Right. And everybody's going, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. And I thought, oh, I'll have a go at that, you know, very quietly to myself. Yeah. So I, I got a notebook, an exercise book from W.H. Smith or whatever, and I started to write a play, and it was about two girls travelling to London on a bus, and they had a goldfish with them. You know, in a, in a in a in a thing, so they had to hold the goldfish bowl carefully because the bus moved about and they might spill a bit of the water out. You know, <laughs> that's all I remember of the play. The other thing I remember about the play, it went on till the end of the exercise book, and then I stopped. I wrote oh. the end. It wasn't the end, but I got to the end of the book. So it's an entire exercise. It was an book entire of the, exercise. Of dialogue of these girls on on a bus with a fish. Yes. So <laughs> I just made it up, and I gave it in. You know, I gave it in, and then the next few days later, I could see this teacher who had his favourites waiting at the school gate, you know, and I sort of walked up towards the school gate, and I thought, he's looking for somebody, he's, he's looking for somebody. And I thought, who's he looking for? And he said, would I like to come round to dinner on Friday? 
And I thought, what? <laughs> I sort of said, yes, you know. And we sort of, that later that, I think it was later that day, we kind of had this one lesson a week or two lessons <laughs> a week that we had. And mm. we were given our work back, you know. And he hadn't sort of marked mine. All he'd put at the end of it was 20 out of 20. <laughs> For me, I think this is true. It's becoming a bit apocryphal <laughs> the more I tell it, but I think it's true. <laughs> and, and, of course, what it was, you see, what, what I think what eventually I was to learn, you know, was that I could write dialogue that people say, actually. It's mm. not clever, you see. It's, mm. not, it's not like a poem. It's not like a novel. It's mm. not clever, really. It's just what people say. And I had some kind of ability to write that down that was slightly better than most other people's ability. And I think in life, the serious point is, isn't it, the serious point about life is finding what we're good at, you know, slightly better at than anybody else. And you said, what were my teens like? So I think what I found in my teens was that I could write dialogue slightly better than mm. most other people could. Mm. And that I think if you can do that, you can sort of write plays or you can begin to write plays. Because I did, and I got them on. And the first play that you asked me about, Mud, here at the Royal Court, or yeah. Taking Stock, as it was called, they altered the title, Right. was written in exactly the same way, more or less, as the two girls on the bus with a goldfish going to London. You'd written... Other, you wrote other things before Mud, though, didn't you? You wrote... I, I, and look, on your Wikipedia page... Mud, Mud is the first full-length thing I wrote. But you'd written... Had you written for community theatre in, in, in the yeah, North East? You had a play in for, Middlesbrough Town Hall. Middle London, yeah, I had, yeah. How did you get... Was, was that just doing the same thing and well, getting involved was, in community theatres? from that course, from doing that minority time, writing that play, yeah. I then got, I did, I went to dinner. What was the dinner like? I can't remember. <laughs> I have no idea, but it was full of, full of bright boys, mm. you know. It would be full of bright boys. In yeah. fact, my best mate, actually, at school was one of the bright boys, actually, and he did go to Cambridge, you know, so he was there. I yeah. Think. But it was through that that I got... he, This guy, this teacher, ran Teesside Youth Theatre. So I got right. into that, you know, and I did. I wrote... I ended up writing two big shows yeah. with a professional theatre director, one of which was good and one of which was absolutely appalling. But youth so, shows, you're talking casts of kind of 20 or 30. I what? what? Large casts with, with, in the youth shows. Large what? Large. Casts. Cats. Casts. Large casts. casts. Bloody hell, yeah, they did. One of them had a cast of about 80. <laughs> wow. 80? Yeah, 80 teenagers <laughs> aged between 12 and 18, plus about 20 adults. Well, that's they all amazing. had a part, but um, some of them didn't get much of a part, you know. So you never acted? I have acted. Have you? Yes. <laughs> in in the North East? I acted in a... Yes. Yeah. You no know, would never thank me for it. And I had... It was a John Mortimer play called Collect Your Handbaggage. <laughs> so I think set in an airport, and I played somebody at an airport, and I had six lines, and we rehearsed it for three months, and I still didn't know them when I went on to do it. <laughs> that was my acting. I soon learned, no, not doing that. Did you cherish the theatre as a space to be different than you've been in other places? That my memory of my own, like working working on school plays for me, it was just like I'm not the person I am in the classroom when I'm in the school play. The hierarchy goes. It's more 
it was a more a cr more creative space defined by a collective spirit. I'm I'm imposing that on you, and maybe you didn't find that. No, I don't think I did. Right. I, I don't think at that stage I did because right. I didn't know enough. Yeah. All it was 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 just not intellectual, you see. So. I, I, no, I did think. I know I did begin to think about that later when I came to London and saw a lot of plays. And when I first came to London, I wrote to the theatre every night. Do you? I don't anymore, but I think it's true of a lot of people. You kind of this for a few years. I saw everything I could. Was that a deliberate commitment to the form as your future profession? No, just because I liked the theatre. Right. No, I don't think I ever thought of it like that. I didn't even think this is a way of learning about it. I just enjoyed going. Did you come to London with the uh, with the intention of being a playwright, or was it just yes. to li yeah? And you and that was going to be your profession. Well, that was what I was going to try and do. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know whether I'd succeed or not. Mm. Uh, interesting, my dad before he died, mm. said I'd, you know, we, I knew my dad was dying actually, because he'd got cancer and we were, we were sitting in Natrim one day and he said, as, when you're quite late on and you'd only really not much much to live, you know, and he said, he said, I just want to tell you something and I thought, what, you know, and he said, I just want to tell you that when you left to go to London, me and your mother were really worried about you, but I want you to know that we were wrong. <laughs> and so I think about that a lot because actually, of course, that was his perception of it as being something brave, perhaps, that, goodness, that was brave, you know, or, goodness, we don't think you can do it, goodness. And people have said to me subsequently, blimey, you were brave to do that. Ah, it wasn't brave at all. Mm. I, don't, I don't think of it as brave because it was all I could do. As I've said, it's all I felt I was slightly better at than somebody else, than most people. How are you earning your living? Uh, on Paddington Station, selling books and magazines and newspapers. How long did you keep that job for? On and off for about two years. I got the job. Living in the living in the room above the family in Yeah, yeah eventually. I stayed on Camden Town yeah. in a friend's room for about a month. Right. Got the job. It was the first, the only job I've ever gone for mm. when I got it. Probably first or second day I was here. Mm. Uh, eventually, I mean, there's another, you know, I'm just telling you stories because I'm of an age now where all I do is tell stories. And I'm inviting you to tell me stories <laughs> as well. That's the whole point of doing this podcast. <laughs> I think the, po the podcast would be much them. worse if you didn't tell me stories. <laughs> Go on, tell us the story. So, well, the other story is is that... that, that um, I worked on the bookstore, you know, and mm. I, I didn't say much, but I think perhaps I did come over as a little bit intelligent now and again, you know. <laughs> and then one day I got a phone call, and I'd written a play in this friend's flat in Camden Town mm. on Camden High Street. I'd written a play. And this theatre... I'd met a theatre director called Chris Parr who'd done the theatre, yeah. big plays in Middlesbrough. Yeah. And done the... He eventually was to do the Sunday Night Here that yeah. we talked about. And so I thought, oh, I better give him, he'll forget about me, I better give him this play. It was a one-act play. It was yeah. called The Grave Lovers. <laughs> and so I gave it to him, and then I'm on Paddington Station selling newspapers, you know, and throwing change at horrible people and stuff like that. 
And I got this phone call. The manager came out of his little cubby hole at the end of this bookstore and said, there's a phone call for you. I thought, what? And I thought, bloody hell, something dreadful's happened, somebody's died, oh. and blah, blah, blah. And I picked up the phone and he said, it's Chris Palm doing your play in Edinburgh in a month's time. We should meet as soon as we can to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the first... That was when I was very young, I was only mm. about 19. Wow. And it went on in Edinburgh and nobody, they all refused to believe I was 19 because it got an old man in it. And one of the reviews <laughs> said it's been, it's been written by some twisted, bitter old man. <laughs> no. But it wasn't, wasn't written by a twisted, bitter old man. It was written by a twisted and bitter 19-year-old. So, you're, so you had two years working on, the, on Paddington. And, yeah. um, and was your... Um, did you work? Did you do other jobs after that, or was it after two years that you started no, earning your living as a writer? Uh, eventually, the manager discovered what I was doing. Yeah. Actually, and he, I, I left to do something. Left to do a play, and he'd he'd say, "Well, when you're back in London, just contact me, just in case I've not been able to fill the post." Right. And so I'd contact him, and it just became clear he never bothered to fill the post. So, in other words, I'd leave and come back, and they'd do the same job. And I got. He was deliberately supporting your writing career. Well, he, he sort of was. I, I think he found me reliable. You know, yeah. I was sort of trustworthy. I could add, you know, despite. I mean, I'd have, you know, I could add up, and yeah. and you know, eventually I started. He sort of gave me more responsibility. I ended up closing up the place or opening up the place. You know, taking the money to the bank and doing all that. It, it paid a pittance, really, but but I did it, and then eventually. I got, at the end of that, uh, I was advised, and I can't remember by who, to apply for an Arts Council grant. They don't give them anymore, mm. actually. But then, in 1974 or whenever it was, you could the money just gave grants to individual writers. Mm. And it, I was advised to apply, and I applied and I didn't get it. But they told me to apply again the next year. Mm. And I did apply again the next year, and I got it. It was not. It was enough money to live on for a year. I subsequently found out it was John McGrath actually, and I did meet right, him right many years later, and yeah. was able to say thank you because he'd argued my corner. Really important. When they'd all said I was Scottish too young, he'd said, "Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. You must have the money." Great, great. Uh, so it was him, and I got it for a year. Um, and then I got it again. They gave me it again the next year, so mm. I got it for another year, and I've about made a living ever since. You don't make a, you don't really make a living as a playwright, as you know. You either make a killing, or you drift along the bottom. Now right. I, I've always kind of, in a way, I've always drifted along the bottom a bit, m bit more earlier on because I wrote some telly, you know, and stuff, which paid mm. more money and shouldn't have been less work, but to me was. And through the eighties. By the time of the 80s, you were writing regularly for the Bush Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the Royal Court Theatre, supported by Max Stafford Clark yes, here. Yes, Max did a play. Yeah? Yep. Uh, and what was it like working with the three theatres? Were they very different to one another? Was your experience at the Bush different to the experience at the Court, experience at the Royal Shakespeare Company? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, it's not... You wouldn't say... I mean, it's writing plays, you know, and I've always written plays my way, and I've always... 
I mean, I, you know, I don't talk about my work mostly, as you know. I mm. just kind of do it, and it's good, bad, and indifferent. People like it or they don't like it. So in that way, it was the same. But I think, you know, well, uh, to me, I don't know whether it still is the case, actually, but there was some kind of structure for a writer, somebody like me, the way you moved up the structure. So I went... What do you mean? Well, I went from writing plays at the bush, which seats 90 or whatever it yep. did, to writing a play for here that seats 400 or mm -hmm. whatever it seats, you mm -hmm. know. And I think that there was a different... There was a different... Oh, goodness, it's quite a profound question, actually. A different, at least in my head, a, uh, there was a different expectation of coming here to a theatre like the Royal Court with its history. And I suppose 1974 is much closer to 1955. Of course it yeah. is. So the history, and I knew about the history of this building because I'd, when I'd cottoned on to the theatre, you know, when I had said, talking about this teacher at school, he'd given me place to read, I'm sure Look Back in Anger would be among them. So, yeah. I'd, you know, you just read this, you read the plays that came out of this building as a young playwright, Edward Bond, and I met some of these people that night that I said, yeah. you know... Not Edward Bond, actually, I don't think. But, you know, the, the Royal Court, whatever they were. So, yeah, to me it was quite a big thing, quite a bit of a daunting thing coming here. And I got in trouble for it, really. Because well, how did you get in trouble? Not, not, well, no, I don't mean from the theatre. I got in trouble myself <laughs> because I thought, oh, goodness, right, now, yeah, you can do this a bit. You know, I realised I could do it a bit. That sort of completely threw me, actually, because I'd always worked from a point of, well, I couldn't really do it, and somebody would, would find out, and I'd get found out, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I sort of realised that I could do it a bit, and that actually, if I really wanted to, I could probably do it more than a bit. Yeah. And so I got it in my head that I had to write a great play, so I didn't write anything for three years. What did a great play mean for you? Well, I have no idea. Right. And I've no idea what it meant then, other than it was a play that would go on this stage and would be lauded, <laughs> you know, and would attract the likes of Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud, you know, and Lindsay Anderson. And yeah. Edward Bond would write to me and say, you're a genius, please, 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 can I come and talk to you? you know. Now I'm being completely ridiculous. No, but, no, you are. But also, but I think there's a secret part of that in all every, every playwright, and certainly every playwright, every playwright who writes for the Royal Court. You know the presence of that back wall in the theatre downstairs. Yeah, it's ridiculous. We've seen on photographs of Saved. We've seen that same wall on photographs of Look Back in Anger. We know of that history, and I, I, it's partly ridiculous. It's also galvanising, isn't it? You know, to want to to want to write on that space, it's galvanised yeah. me. I think. Yeah, to be I part think. of that, whatever that is. It's yeah, both the worst. Right. It's both the worst and the best thing about being a Royal Court playwright, is that we're writing under the legacy of all, so many great writers. I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and and now for a generation, you're part of the legacy that we're all writing under. <laughs> no, I'm going to stop flattering you. True, you don't really. like it. How uh, rural do you feel was one question I had for you. How rural? Rural, because it was so moving when you took me and David up to Gisborough and we saw the farm where you well, were raised. I was raised. a bit naughty, wasn't I? Because you wouldn't feel the electric fence with a blade of grass. No, I, no, I wouldn't. No, I, I didn't want to. <laughs> the, um, but, uh, but, but coming from Gisborough... It's very important. ...to Paddington... <laughs> 
No, well, it, it is important because what I mean, I've I've got thoughts about what makes you a rural person, but I'm interested in how rural you felt or how urban you felt. Um, if you felt more rural moving to the city, or um, or or if it was something you've always wanted to was be was be in the city. Hmm. Goodness. Well, I mean, Howard Brenton once said there are two sorts of plays: plays set in rooms and yeah. plays not set in rooms. Yeah. Forgive me if I've quoted him wrong, but anyway, you know, I hope you won't mind. And I definitely write plays not set in rooms. Mm. So, so I'm of that school of playwriting, which you are too, I think, actually. Um, what does that mean, to be, apart from them literally not being set in rooms? Well, He's reaching for something bigger than that. than that, isn't he? Yeah, yeah it is. It's just to do with the theatre. I think it's partly to do with, with the realisation... Which I think I real I realised from reading Howard Brenton's plays actually that mm. the theatre is a dirty place, you know, and I still think it's a, even though I try and be tried to be, to a degree sophisticated within it, I still think of the theatre as a dirty space, as a space that doesn't have to be clean, um, and so and I don't know, bloody hell, it's a really profound question. It's That's intrigued. two profound questions I've asked you, right? I'm really, I'm counting them, mate. <laughs> well, yeah, because actually, because for the first time ever, yeah. I'm sitting at home at the moment, trying to write a play set in a room. Now I've written, I've written scenes in rooms, mm. you know, but I've never written no play set in a room, and I don't think this either will be set in a room. And I like. I mean, my natural thing is two people, one old, one young, you know, sitting on a hillside, ruminating about the quality of the world to some degree. <laughs> and I learned that wasn't enough, you know, but I could do that, really. I could fill an exercise book with that. Yeah. But th that wasn't enough. The other things had to come in to do with story and action and conflict. You know, the theatre is fundamentally about conflict. Um, but... Uh, I'm still. I don't know. There's a there's an area that that I find it where the characters can look out over a landscape yeah. in a way that they can't in a room. Mm. And I can't yeah. explain it more than that. I, I know David Eldridge, who we've worked with, obviously David Eldridge, yeah. said a really beautiful thing. I think he was quoting Max Stafford Clark in saying that uh, when people are outside, they behave differently because they can see the horizon. We have a different relationship with the horizon, have a different relationship with your place in the planet, in the universe. In in, in a room, all you see is the other people in the room. I think that's right. It is about the horizon, actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but yeah. I absolutely understand that. Yeah. Um, and you don't have that in a room. You were defiant when talking about the writing of mud. And you said, it, I wrote it in just the same way as those two girls on the bus. Throughout the 70s and the 80s, when you were becoming a significant professional playwright, did your process change? No. My process has never changed. Could you describe your process? Yeah, I mean, I have this, yes. I mean, it's just getting up in the morning and hoping for the best. What do you write on? Well, I've gone back. I did write, I can't remember, I did write a play at a, at, at, on a word processor at a computer. Mm hmm uh, uh, but I've gone back to writing longhand. So mm. breakfast, well, not not all the time longhand. Bre so breakfast of eels that you referred to, mm. which is the last thing I finished. 
that was the first and second drafts of that were written longhand with ink in a notebook. What type of pen? Well, the new pen. I had to go and buy a new one. And it was a really big, big moment because all the other work that I'd written longhand, which is most of it, not quite all of it, but most of it, was written in the pen with the same pen that I sat my O-levels with. A fountain pen with the same nib, I think the same nib. And it just packed in, I'm afraid. It just reached the point where it wouldn't do any more. But I still have it. Still the got same it. pen? Yep. So right up to what? Up to Rafts and Dreams? Yep. Oh, yeah, that was written with the same pen. <laughs> so Make so, sure that pen goes in the theatre so, so, museum. Every play is written with a special mug that nobody else touches. Anybody touches the mug, it's gone. So buying the mug is quite important. So buying the pen to write A Breakfast of Eels was quite important. I had to really struggle with the pen because I couldn't... It was just getting in such a mess with the other pen. It was just ink all over the place. They're ink pens, you see. They're not yeah. even biros. They're, they're, um, Why? But it was good. It's a good pen, and it was only 18 quid. <laughs> what? What? What, um, what? So the plays that were Parker, written on... Parker, were... they might sponsor me. Parker. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Robert Ullman. Sponsored by Parker. Oh, no. The... <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the natural poster boy for Parker Pens. <laughs> um, um, so the play's written on computer. Some, so Jonah and Otto, was that written on computer? Certainly Thousand Stars Explode in the Sky. By the time you yeah, wrote your draft on it, it must have been written yeah, on it. Yeah. How did that physically feel different to writing with a, with a fountain pen? Well, you see, I'm yeah. It's a really, pro- it is. A, it's another profound question. Come on, you know, that's you're, the hat you're trick. really getting them in here. <laughs> 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 well, it is profound because I think there is a there is a there's a serious something or yeah. essay to be written yeah. about the difference between a typewriter I agree. and a and a word processor or a computer. Yeah. Uh, so that all the stuff that I did, you see, was two drafts with longhand in in ink in a book. Ooh move on to the typewriter to type it up and mm. eventually you were able to take that to the photocopying shop and get it photocopied. When I very, very first started, I don't think there was even photocopying. So you had to put stencils in right. uh, or do it on a stencil yeah. or carbon paper. Yeah. So you'd put three sheets of paper with two carbons and end up with three copies. Yeah. Um, now that what that forced on you was a kind of was a was right from going on to a typewriter, a kind of care. Just I've got to get this right because otherwise I've got to retype the whole page. Yeah. Whereas what I, I mean I love it about a word processor. I love it or I did love it because you didn't have that. You could just well just take that word out or mm-hmm. join that up. Now. I discovered for me, and I probably don't know whether, don't think I did do that with A Thousand Stars, because actually my go-through of A Thousand Stars, I did what I do, and I did a whole draft. Mm-hmm. I started on page one yeah. and finished on page whatever it was, yeah. however long it was. Yeah. So my go at that was... I, so, so all your stuff, all the stuff that you... There would be page after page that all I did was retype it. Right. Yeah. So... It was quite. It's quite interesting that just just retyping somebody else's work. You don't half learn about it because you have to that, make every decision that they've made. Yes. Yeah. In a way, I mean, to the dot and comma, you know, 
so you you do learn about. I did learn a lot, I think, from just retyping it. Yeah. And uh, you know, and making a mistake, think, oh bloody hell, I've typed that wrong. You, you know what I mean? I've just missed an and out, or a, or a word out, or. So it incredibly precisely. Do you write in the same room? Yep. What's the room? Well, I write because I've not got a big flat. I yeah. write in there's a corner of my bedroom. Yeah. That is given over to a desk mm-hmm. with a computer on it, and in the desk are drawers with mm-hmm. paper and. What does the desk look over? It looks out the window right. over the street. Um, but I can't really see much out. I'm at the top of a house, within the eaves of a sure. house. So looking at a play like, so for example, Ruffs and Dreams or Breakfast of Eels, either of those plays, the process is you get up and, and what do you do? Are you a planner? Do you plan the play? Did you know when Ruffs of Dreams, which has this extraordinary ending where the entire world floods, when you wrote that incredible first scene, where the soldier's wife is being encouraged to touch the toilet and put her hand down the toilet, did you know that it was going to culminate in the flooding of the world? What do you know when you start a play? No, I don't think I did. No, I've described it, and I'm trying to be careful about it because I don't want it to become a joke, in a way. Because uh, I, I do tell the truth, yeah. you know, more or less. But some things you think, well, I'm not going to tell this. I don't, well, I don't know why I should necessarily tell you the truth. There's absolutely. no reason why you should especially be, when feel I, free to lie. Especially when I don't absolutely understand it myself. Yeah. But, but no, it's just I just mess about. You know, I don't know. I can't paint, you know. But I, I understand that sometimes artists, before they do a painting, they'll sketch it a bit and they'll try a bit and they'll try bits yeah. of this and bits of that and then sit down to do the painting. I think mm. that's what I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the way... I think when we worked together, I think... I, I used to be kind of astonished by your ability to sit down and write a play really quite quickly, sometimes in days, sometimes in weeks, mm. that, that would take me a year, perhaps. But I think, I think what I describe as my... I think what I realised, maybe, was that what I describe as my doodling, in other words, I just will write stuff and see if yeah. anything crops up, yeah. this sketching a bit like, that you sort of do that in your head, I think, do you? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think so. I, I, uh, I think I'm, I, I do, and I write a lot of notes. I keep notebooks... Yeah. And the notes are not necessarily moving towards plans, but they're sketching ideas, and sometimes the notes will burst into dialogue. And then I'll I'll keep I'll do that for a period of months, and then re- read over them, and build, build start to focus the shape and structure of the play out of the notes that I've made. I think so. The similar. I don't think it's that dissimilar. It's I think not, we do no. it very differently. Yeah, but it's not that dissimilar. I think. We just do it in a different way. It's a way of trying to get into a position where you think you can sit down and write a play. So and maybe... Event- gone. No, well, eventually I hope to get from all this doodling and the, the, the two drafts, you know, that they get a bit better in a way. Mm-hmm. But And some, the, you know, so you said, how did the flooding of the world emerge? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it emerged because I'd sort of realised that I couldn't be David Hare. I wasn't going to be David Hare and write the great English play. By which you the mean great, the great political well, or play? Well, the great the, play about yeah. the politics of our time yes. or, or understand our time yeah. in, in any political way. Yeah. I just, so I thought, oh, well, fuck it, I'll just flood the world. You know, that, 
that's that's a bit what I can do. A David Hare can't flood the world, but I can. <laughs> so that's what I'll do. You know. <laughs> so kind of went on holiday, and I've been trying to go on holiday ever since. Really. It's amazing you know. when I think about your plays. Your your range of imagination astonishes me. I remember uh, when there was a retrospective of your plays at the Royal Exchange about ten years ago, and as part of that, they asked both myself and David Eldridge to direct a reading. You did, I remember. And I directed a reading of The Overgrown Path, which is a play I adore. It was amazing stage direction. It was done here, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, was done here. Yeah, amazing stage direction in which a bolt of lightning strikes a tree and cleaves the tree in two, killing one of the characters underneath it. Now, most playwrights wouldn't do that. Most playwrights don't have that range of imagination. Most playwrights wouldn't pull up, a, in Rafts and Dreams, pull up the root of a tree and find the, entire, uh, the entirety of London has an underground lake. You, 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 said, you said of your own writing that you write people... Uh, people talking to one another, and you, you're good at capturing the way in which people talk to one another. I think there's more going on there. It's more than just capturing what people are like in real life, because continually your plays stretch the barriers of what real life is. You know, you're not a naturalist. You're not a realist or whatever. I'd never. I, I actually secretly think people don't know that nobody knows the difference between a realist no, and a naturalist. It's but all, it's all bullshit. It but really actually, what your your plays are more than just trying to capture what life is actually like. You're determined like. to offer me praise, aren't you? No, listen, listen. I, I bloody am because you're bloody good. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> no, but I'm more. It's, it's not praise. It's a question. You must know in your plays that actually people aren't like that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, but what it is, you see, it's a kind of... Um, I think you have it, you know, we all... I think, I think, I don't know whether I'm a good writer or not, you know, the people decide. Mm. But there's an area in all writing of irreverence, and you've got to be a bit irreverent and a bit... You know, it's not that I'm sticking two fingers up to the world, I'm not, and I'm not trying to be rude, but there's a bit of me... That's a little bit evil, you know, and enjoys being a little bit evil, you know. So, so the flooding of the world is just is just how it came about. I've no idea how it came about, but I know it's just a little bit naughty. Or in Jonah and Otto when, yeah, when he takes his clothes, yeah, yeah you think oh, <laughs> it's a little bit naughty. Do you laugh while you're writing? No, no, I don't. But but I do mean it to be a bit naughty, yeah. you know. Yeah. How I, are you in rehearsal? In for John Renato. No, just in general. Are you good in rehearsal? You're good. Am I player? good in rehearsal? Yeah, you're a good player. Do you enjoy? Do you like the rehearsal room? Yeah, I do, and I, I like to think I'm good in rehearsal. But I think the the writer's role in rehearsal has changed a bit since I mm -hmm. started. Even here, you know, so. So, I mean, when I first went in the rehearsal room, I just didn't know anything. Just didn't know anything. So I'd, sat, I'd sit in a corner, and then the Chris Parr, the director, would say to me, what does this mean? And I'd say, very shyly, because I wouldn't say boo to a goose, mm. you know. I'm not like that now, I know. But I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know. Mm. And he'd say, oh, you're useless. <laughs> we'll have to make it up. And I'd say, yes, you would, you will. So he'd kind of make it up. So my thing about, I always thought the writer's job really was to buy the drinks at the end of the day mm. 
and kind of be nice and be constructive. And encouraging. Yes. But and you're inspired by actors. Am I inspired? You are inspired. I mean, I know you're inspired. You've written four well, actors. I'd love to come to this because it's something I'd like to talk to you about, actually, yeah. because I find myself... I'll just explain my position and then I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Is that... that I increasingly have done it. I've written for actors. I realise, mm. without really realising that I'd done it, quite a lot going back, even going back to when I was quite young. And, yeah. I, and, and I'm doing it... Uh, Breakfast of Eels was written for two actors. Um, and I think it's, it's this. It's because when I've talked to writers in the past, you know, one of the things I might say is, is that... I think when you write, you have to enjoy your own loneliness. You have to enjoy your own space. And you just ask about being in a rehearsal room, and that is when a playwright can come out and be social, in a way, and can buy the drinks and can meet other people. Mm. And I've always enjoyed that side of it. <laughs> but because my plays have taken me, some of them have taken me 18 months to write, certainly a year, most of them, you can't. I so, so I have to kind of enjoy my own loneliness mm. in a way. Yeah, and I think the truth is now, is that I'm enjoying my own loneliness in writing less and less and less. Yeah. and I'm wondering if that's why I've not even more concretely begun to write for actors. I adore actors mm. actually. Mm. Is and I don't know. I don't know. I'm just pondering that. Mm that perhaps, perhaps I'm a bit tired of the loneliness. Now, mm. I want to ask you mm. a question, since you ask me a lot of questions. <laughs> the question is this, yes. that I think I kind of have a sort of affinity for actors. Yeah. I'm not saying you don't, uh -huh. but you have much more of affinity for directors and wanting to work with directors. Mm -hmm. And the question I want to ask mm. is, do you think you have that for the same reason that I do, that it's less lonely? I think I cherish the gang mentality. The gang. The gang, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always I like asking writers about their early life in writing, because I always think things are revealed that occur later in their plays. So when I think about you talking about the tempest and remembering the storm, or going home and wanting to fly, if there's any playwright that I can think of that would write the stage direction, they start to fly it would be Robert Holman. I think in, what's revealed in my work from my teenage years and my kind of adolescence is a sense of not being in the gang, of kind of being the kid who would sit at the back of the class and listen to but the wanting Smiths. Wanting to be in the wanting gang. Wanting to be, feeling terribly lonely as an adolescent, being kind of mildly bullied, uh, you know, taking solace in music and art and theatre. Um, and, and so the rehearsal room for me is a space where all of a sudden I'm, I'm, in, I'm hanging out with the cool kids and I really cherish that. Um, uh, at the same time, being a playwright in rehearsal, you're on one side of the desk. You're not having to expose yourself too much. Um, and there's a protection in that that I value. Um, I, I cherish actors as well. Uh, I cherish um, the... Uh, I always think that, I, that when I'm writing, in the process of writing, I spend time imagining people who I existed in, who I wished existed in real life so that I could hang yeah. out with them. Uh, and then and the process of acting becomes a, a realisation of my fantasy, kind of like hanging out with people. That's particularly often true for female characters for me. 
You know, I, 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 I think of the women who I wished I could hang out with and then write them. But the director thing, I think, is maybe it's a kind of fetishization of the European aesthetic where I want to be a little bit like David Bowie in Berlin in 1977 <laughs> and be hanging out in the art schools. And that's what they do over there. They, they value the director. So I, do, I want to be yeah. a bit like that. I, I, we've only got about five more minutes now, which is we, which is we've got a little bit more. So I'm I'm not resisting you turning the tables. Ask me no, more. I just wanted to turn them at least once. <laughs> Do you read your own plays? Do I read them? Yeah. Do you ever go back and read them? No, not not if I can help it. When you see them revived, and they're starting to be revived more now. German Scaries was revived last year for yeah, a tour was. and came yeah, to five oh three. Making noise quietly was revived at the Donmar Warehouse, everybody I meet in British theatre seems to want to do Raffs and Dreams, but none of them have bloody done it yet, so pull your fingers out, directors. The, um, uh, do you notice recurring themes or interests? You've yeah, talked to Yeah, what do you notice? Very, very depressing, you know. Because <laughs> I've written the same play over and over again for 40 years, uh, really, or yeah. sort of. Not flippant, actually, I don't mean that flippantly, but... But, yeah, no, well, I mean, I did see German Scaries, which was done at the bush. Very interesting, very strange, seeing a play that I wrote when I was 22, I yeah. think, 22, 23. You don't know, I have no idea what it was going to be like. I wasn't much involved in the production, a little bit. Mm. I went along and talked to them two or three times mm. and delighted to do so, you know. But took the actors to the pub, mm. bought them a drink. Yeah. Uh, but sitting and watching it was sort of extraordinary in a way, and I didn't. It was very difficult for me the first time I saw it, because it just was about me. I'm afraid about what I thought, whether there was any quality in this play or not. When actually, of course, what the company and the actors wanted from me was well done. And really, I'm thinking, oh bloody hell, what? <laughs> but and I did try and do the well done bit, you yeah. know, thank you, well done. Yeah. But really, it was difficult, I think, because I didn't know what I thought. I saw it again, and it a bit more. I got a bit more clarity on it, mm. and then I saw the press saw a, a performance where I'd got some friends come, including Matthew Tennyson mm. came, who had, who had written a breakfast of eels for, and Natalie came. Two people that I know, you know, mm. younger people than me, who didn't come, possibly. I think the play was written before they were born. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. Right? So it's interesting, yeah. you know. And I value their opinion enormously. Yeah. And I said to them, what do you think? He said, well, it's just you. <laughs> just you. It's clear you wrote it. I thought, I wrote this play all those years ago. And I thought, yeah, it is. I can see it is, actually. It's, still a, it's still a character striving, wanting to do better, wondering whether he should leave, wondering whether all the things that we began this discussion with, am yeah. I capable of doing this? Can I achieve this if I go off and try and be good mm. and better and more intelligent? You know? When I read... I, uh, I had a day when I read about six of your plays in one day. You know, know. It was really hard. It was a really hard day. But um, <laughs> a recurring stage direction in several of your plays, which I've written about in essays me. about you, uh, which is the stage direction of a single tear rolls down their cheek. And it's an image which, I mean, if I. What's your response to that observation that that stage direction is in about four of your plays, maybe more? It is, and you told me, and I've yeah. never been able to put it since. <laughs> but what because... is that image for you? Well, I tell you what, I don't know when I wrote it. I don't know because I managed some, somewhere along that line, my instinct, 
I think he's okay. It, my instinct gets me through things, actually. My, just, just because it takes so painstaking what I do when I sit down and write, you know, and I try and move, not move on unless the line is right, you know. It, it's simply that I don't think I've known it when, I've write, when I write it, but what I've learned in the theatre is that it's much more interesting to see a character try not to cry mm. than it is to cry. So I think the single tear is simply about this, having the character trying to have the courage not to cry mm. and more or less succeeding, but not quite. But that's that actually, to be honest, that comes out of you saying to me quite a few years ago, because yeah. it's an observation we've had, it's a conversation we've yeah. shared before, and I, didn't, I don't think I was aware I'd written it until you pointed out, it out to me. And so I've thought about it a lot, yeah. and I think that's the answer I come up with, that it's to do with courage, and I think my plays are about the, they're about courage in one way and another. Is your father on his deathbed telling you that he thought you were brave? Well, yeah, may, yeah, maybe, but I don't see it. I didn't see that as brave. I don't. I didn't. Um, but they're about the people, you know. They're just about the people in them. Um, What's theatre for for you? What's it for? Yeah. Well, it's an entertaining, it's an entertainment. It's got to be entertaining. Think, though, bloody hell, enough people have fallen asleep in my place to realise they didn't find it entertaining. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think it's also can be a commentary on the world. Yeah. What's important in the world. It's like any art. It's no mm. different to any art. It can make us think. It can make us laugh, it can make us cry, it can make us happy, it can make us sad. Mm. Um, and it can make us think, and it can move us, and all those things. That's what I think it's for. Is that what it's for for you? It's why you're drawn to it, it's why you return to it. Well, I was drawn to it because I could write it, I realised I could write it. It must be more than that, because I've always enjoyed going to it, and I still do. I go yeah. to it a lot less. I mean, I saw Carol Churchill play here a few months ago escaped alone it was wonderful you yeah. know just absolutely and what partly what i thought was wonderful was to see four actresses of an age in their 60s whatever on stage together and that it was again actors i realized it was i thought it was a brilliant wonderful play and mm. it was really well done mm. but there was just something nice so i think i increasingly i think i always have I think I go to the theatre to see actors. I know I do, actually. Mm. And when I think back, what I remember is actors. Mm. Act performances that, you know... Th I remember Penelope Wilton in the Donmar, in a, quite a creaky old play. I uh, can't even remember what it is. You know, Enid Bagnall played the chalk card. Mm. Penelope Wilton and... can't remember. Can't remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, and I, I sort of remember that. So it's, it, it is... And I think that's another reason why I'm drawn to actors. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think actors are very... I haven't talked really about actors much, you know, but, but I think actors at their best are, are really courageous, I think. And, that, and I find the courage moving, I think. We know, don't we, sometimes what it is on a first night or whatever, when everything's gone a bit haywire because they have to go on stage they have to go on and do it 
and we just sit in the audience, don't we? We go and have a pint, don't we? <laughs> we we do what we do, and they have to go on and do it. And yeah, and sometimes I think I know what courage it took to come on and do it, and I find that moving, and I still do. Robert Holman, thank you very <laughs> much indeed. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen Simon and tune in next week to next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. Ta-ra.